Brian, how could you let me, your lord and master, languish in a filthy dungeon for over a month? I don't understand it. You talk as though it's the easiest thing in the world to rescue someone from Echelon Castle. Well, I should have thought your devotion to me was such as to make the task nothing to you. Well, it didn't. It was hard. I know it was, Brian. You did well. Now I can't wait to return to Echelon Castle. You mean after all I went through to get you out, you want to go back? I have a score to settle there. By my sword, I'm going to settle it. Hey everybody, this is Brent. And this is Drew. And last weekend, Brent and I got to spend some FaceTime together, which is pretty pretty cool. That does not happen often. Uh, <laughs> as we were both in Baltimore, Maryland for the Regeneration Who convention. Uh, Regeneration Who number four. Uh, which, on the whole, was largely a positive experience. I had a blast. And so what we're going to do today is talk a little bit about... What we saw, what we heard, what we experienced, the panels we went to and were a part of. And then we're going to play the interviews we managed to nab. Um, going into this convention, Brent, we knew about our last panel uh, with Simon Fraser. We were really excited about that one. Mm-hmm. But we managed to nab a completely unexpected and completely welcome interview as well, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a little bit. So how was your drive up to Baltimore? Well, uh, very, very early on the Friday, got up and left about uh, 7 or 8 and drove pretty much straight up there. Stopped a couple of times for gas and drink, uh, something to drink or whatever, breakfast, but uh, it was it was nice. I, I thought we may, maybe I would run into some uh, snow or bad weather, but there was none whatsoever. I was surprised. Yeah, yeah, same, same here. Um, the weather had uh, taken a kind of a turn for the wintry mix, which is not surprising towards the end of March, but we did not encounter any of that. So I came up on a Thursday to uh, hang out with the Pixel Who folks, and then we left uh, Thursday evening to then load up. So we stayed Thursday night, loaded up on the Friday morning, which was pretty good. I think it's a good way of doing it because I got to be awake and I didn't have to spend the first part of the day on the road. I don't Mm -hmm. mind traveling, but it it helps. And the other beautiful thing about um, the way the floor plan was set up for Regeneration Who is all the vendors are on one floor, all the panels are on one floor, and the only deviation that you get is for photographs, which is on the sixth uh, floor six, so it's just one floor above us. So everything was on the same level, which is nice. I hadn't been to a lot of conventions where, you know, from whatever central location you were at, you could pretty much see and go to anything without having to travel a long distance, which is really nice going between panels. It was very nice uh, that everything was on the same floor. Um I went a couple of years ago. I was at a different hotel, and it was basically on two floors, and it was a lot of lot of up and down and uh, moving around. And it's it's nice to have everything all in one area. So um, we have, you know, it's only been a week, 
Uh, and my memory, you know, I'm not so old that, that my memory is a problem, but uh, I have, I am suffering from concred. Uh, so I have a bit of a cheat. I have the schedule for Regeneration Who 4 in front of me. And I just thought we'd just go through line by line and just kind of see where we were at and what we did. Um, just give a brief review. Uh, I mean, we have a interview that takes 40 minutes towards the end. So uh, we <laughs> want to make sure we can not take up too much time for that. But um uh, did you go to the We Are Regeneration Who opening panel at 3 o'clock? I did not. I got there uh, between 1 and 2 and went straight to the uh, to the guest signings. Yeah. And went right down the line through everybody. Who'd you meet? Um, John Leeson. Yeah. Was first. Um, Michael Jaston. Cool. Was, was uh, very nice. Mark Strickson came in right as I got to his table. So I was the first person to say hello, shake his hand. That's cool. Uh, yeah, he's very nice. Um, Colin Baker was there. Nicola Bryant was there. Yeah, Terry Malloy was there. Um, William Russell. Mm-hmm. And then pretty much all of the Fifth Doctor's Season 19 family was there. Uh, with Peter Davison and Janet Fielding, Sarah Sutton, Michael uh, Matthew Waterhouse. Um on down the line, trying to go down in order if they were the tables. <laughs> gotcha. Here I am jumping, they were... jumping ahead. Yeah, there's there's a the lineup for this convention was beyond amazing. Um, I kept on waiting for the rug to be pulled out from underneath us and to say, "Ah, oh, sorry, <laughs> we we got all these folks, but we just we can't contain so much awesome in one location." Uh, and with the exception of um, Caroline Ford, Caroline Ford, and uh, Jenny Colgan, uh, they they everyone showed up. Which was yeah, really cool. Sure did. And uh, Lisa Greenwood and Jason Hay Gallery were at the other two. At those That's tables. right. Yeah, for the big finish table. What was yeah. it? Yeah, I saw you going through the line. Uh, you looked like it was Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually wish I had done what you did, which is just get those greetings and signatures out of the way. I tried to fit around it. Um, as the weekend progressed, and I ended up not meeting several folks I really wish I had met. Um, Michael Jason, I didn't even, I managed to do a quick jig with him, uh, but I didn't actually manage to say hello or get a selfie, which I really would have liked to have done. Uh, Sarah Sutton, who I was so excited to see, uh, didn't didn't get a chance to say hi to her. Um, and Mark Strickson also, um, I managed to miss every panel that he was on, uh, so... A bit of a bummer, but that's entirely my fault, not the cons. <laughs> um, at 4 o'clock, um, I actually was going to go to the Gallifrey Public Radio meetup, and I went in for a few minutes because I love those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the William Russell photo op at 4.30, and I don't like to be in the wrong lines or wait for a really long time <laughs> if I can help it. So I was in the GPR uh, meetup for just a few minutes before going up there. And so I got a chance to meet William Russell, which <clears throat> this being the first time I got the chance to meet William Russell uh, for the weekend uh, kind of blew my mind that he was even at this convention. Mm-hmm. He, his actions totally belay whatever feelings you might have about his age. The guy is so much younger than he, he is like his energy level is not, 
on par with his age. He is, you know, he's energetic, he's walking around, he's laughing about things. Uh, <laughs> all the panels I saw him on were pretty awesome. So mm-hmm. I got to sit down next to him and put my arm around him and uh, tell him thank you and get my photo taken with him. And uh, that, I got to carry that around with me for the rest of the con. So I got that right out of the way first and foremost, and that was bonkers. That's that's awesome. And uh, bless him, 93 years old, and he is acts like he's in his 60s. <laughs> he's just moving yes. around. and Yeah. Uh, he was he was great. Uh, at that time, I was with you for a few minutes at the GPR meetup, and then when you left, I left also and cut over to the Trial of a Time Lord panel with Colin Baker, Nicola Bryant, and Michael Jaston. Uh, so that was great. Followed by the, the Fifth Doctor Season 19 panel, which had Peter Davison, Janet Fielding, Sarah Sutton, and Matthew Waterhouse all together. And uh, those those were great interviews. Yeah, I bet they were. I bet that was really cool. Uh, while you were in that, I went to the Paul Mars Writers Workshop because I've read a few of Paul's pieces. And um, for me, going to these conventions, one of the highlights is when a writer will show because I do a little bit of writing myself. I'm certainly not a writer, but I have written and I have great reverence for the act of writing well. And so if he was going to offer a workshop, I I certainly would take it. And it was good. Um, very fun experience. Uh, it was actually one, there's part one and part two, which happened on Sunday. We'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, at six o'clock, I had a panel, my first panel of the weekend. I got asked by Joy Piedmont to do a panel called The First Face That This Face Saw, which is looking at companions who were with the doctor when the doctor regenerated. Uh, and that was a fabulous panel. Um, it really was quite enjoyable. Uh, good conversation. I, I may have referred to the TARDIS as a windowless van at one point in time in <laughs> yes, regards <you> did. <laughs> to Matt Smith failing to kidnap Amy Pond as a child. Um, I, we've never talked about my feelings uh, of that relationship on this program. Uh, I think there's some there's some real questionable aspects of the Dr. Amy Pond, Rory Williams relationship, even though I love that first season with them mm-hmm. than any more than any of the other ones in New Who. As someone who works with children, uh, I do have a problem with it. Um, yes, I'm afraid that that was the takeaway that a lot of people got, and I really wish I hadn't said it because I got people coming up to me for the rest of the convention going, hey, windowless van. I'm like, you know what? That is not the thing I want you to be focusing on. Um, so where'd you go? Where were you at six? I was there. I, I was there in the audience. I, yeah, I remember the windowless van, and that's pretty much a, a lot of what people took away from that because <laughs> I was with you a couple of times when somebody walked up. and Look, I got a picture for you. It's a windowless van. Yeah. Wait. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I was uh, I was hanging there watching you talk up there, and uh, <laughs> uh, what did we do after that? Uh, well, there was the seven o'clock um, John Leeson, William Russell, Mark Strickson that Cara Denison did, uh, mm-hmm. and I I popped in for that for a little bit, but then uh, I think we all met up um, with Valerie Meese, and we went and got dinner. That's right. So, yeah. So we got some food. Um, the the hotel that we stayed at was really nice. The restaurant in the hotel was a bit pricey. So as I am incredibly cheap, um, and we were <laughs> in the heart of downtown 
the the Bay Boardwalk of Baltimore. Uh, I'm sure I can make that more alliterative, but I'm not going to. Uh, we went to Five Guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, so. that was a, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Um, which means that we end up missing a lot of other programming. Uh, I didn't get a chance to go to the intro to Big Finish, which I thought would have been really interesting, and I missed the Dave Ross variety show. Yeah, that that would have been fun. I saw that a couple of years ago, um, and it's Tara Malloy and Cat Smith uh, doing a lot of song and dance. It's like a variety show. Sure, and uh, it's it's great. Yeah, I but mean we that didn't was go this year. Yeah. yeah, I mean that was it for my my Friday. I I actually ended up going to bed pretty early because I wanted to avoid con crud. Did not succeed in that, but um, uh, and that was that was my Friday evening. So. Same here. I drove back, um, staying with my sister-in-law this week, that weekend, and uh, had an hour and a half drive back. Saturday, busy Saturday, crazy busy Saturday. Very I started busy. off at 10 a.m. Uh, I skipped the yoga with Cat Smith because I don't bend that way, uh, and I watched <laughs> Rachel Talalay on this weekend in time travel. Same here, and um, that was so cool. And uh, I know uh, they were going to record that for their show, and they weren't able to because Rachel pulled a surprise out of her hat and showed a clip from Twice Upon a Time that's never been seen before. Yeah. That was yeah. awesome. Yeah. The, um, I was not expecting that, and I, I really hope that one day that that film clip becomes available. I know it's not available on the Blu-ray, but I certainly think people who dislike um, uh, David Tennant's I Don't Want to Go speech, this puts that in a very different light. Uh, it was it was touching and it was funny and it, it definitely cast a different feel for that particular regeneration story. And uh, oof, the fact that we got a chance to see it was really cool. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Did you get a chance? I, after that, I went to the tribute to the first Doctor, so... Uh, William Russell was there, and uh, that was hosted by, or moderated by um, Heather McHale and Nev Fountain, both of which did an amazing job. But would you, were you in, no, you were, of course, you managed to plant a seat and just kind of <laughs> stay there, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I, I, I managed to squeak my way up to seventh row center, and, and I got there maybe 10, 15, and I squeaked in there. I managed to save you a seat, and uh, I was there from 10 o'clock uh, through that that Rachel Talley panel, the the uh, William Russell panel, the Cat Smith concert, right into the big main event at one o'clock, <laughs> and uh, got lucky. Got lucky. Yeah, it's a good. It was a good seat. I couldn't join you for the entirety of that because at uh, twelve I had a panel called Inside a Book: Fictional Literary Characters in Doctor Who, which was quite fascinating to look at characters who we see as as both lit- literary and fictional, but did show up as real characters in on the program. A lot mm-hmm. of time was spent with discussing Robin Hood, and uh, and we we stuck with the television program rather than the actual expanded universe, you know. But there's a lot more going on in Big Finish and the novels and and the, and the comics and whatnot, but. Um, it was good. It was a very good panel, but I managed to rush back from that panel, get that seat that you saved for me, <laughs> and we got to sit down to for one hour of Cara Dennison interviewing Peter Capaldi. Yes, he is still on. He, he is. is uh, he was a hundred percent showman the whole time he was there. He was very quick with funny responses, especially to the audience. Um, there's a clip you can find on YouTube where. Uh, a lady in the audience was asking a question, and he chokes on his water, 
And uh, she's like, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, I nearly regenerated there. <laughs> he said, that would have been a big surprise, huh? You would have got your money's worth. Yeah. And then he pauses and he says, hi, I'm Jordy. Yeah. <laughs> that must have happened after I left. Um, oh, it was excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, have, I, of course, he's like, it, for those listening, go, why would you leave in the middle of Peter Capaldi? Um, Brent and I got our a position for to get uh, a picture taken with Capaldi, and it was at 2.30, mm-hmm. and uh, knew that line was going to fill up quick. So about 45 minutes into the, the conversation, uh, I decided to head upstairs and get in the line for that. And I got in third in line, so that was a, a pretty um, quick and painless wait. <laughs> So, of course, I'm already up there uh, at 2 o'clock, waiting in line, hanging out with some folks. A lot of fun people. Everyone really excited. Energy came in. You showed up. We were third in line to see Capaldi. Um, I think he was scheduled to start at 2.30. We didn't start taking photos until 2.40. But, you know, considering that the the talk was a little... Oh, you know what? Okay, here's what we've got. Because what we didn't mention is while we were waiting for Capaldi to come on stage... There was a little bit of delay. Don't know why uh-huh. that was. Um, yeah. And so they started bringing folks on onto the stage to kind of, you know, just kill the time. And Jason Hay Gallery came on mm-hmm. and may have completely, uh, I don't want to say spoiled it, but he, he <laughs> definitely jumped the gun on some big finish news. If he said it, I know I've already seen it on the internet, so it's, it's kind of official now. But Missy is getting her own series. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was like, do we have any Missy fans in the audience? And everybody was yelling, and then he's like, well, we've got some big surprises next year. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> did he just <laughs> did he just accidentally spoil something? But it wasn't him. I, I heard that... Um, Michelle Gomez. Yeah, Michelle Gomez was being interviewed an hour later, and that she totally spilled the beans. Uh, so I kind of picked up on that clue there, and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> well, it's, it's but, not just that. I mean, yes, the fact that Missy gets her own big finish is pretty awesome, but the fact that Alex Kingston is going to be in it as well, that was kind of uh, another bomb that they dropped. That's really cool. It is really cool. I mean, I would buy it anyway, but I'm super stoked now. <laughs> uh, so, Brent, what was it like uh, getting a chance to shake hands with Peter Capaldi? Oh, it was so awesome. Uh we walked up there. I have a little five-year-old niece who is a huge Paddington fan. Um, she's seen the first one I don't know how many times on Netflix. And I took her to see part two a few weeks ago. And so when we first walked up, I shook his hand. I said, my five-year-old niece is a huge Paddington fan. He said, oh, Paddington. And then he pauses and he says, everybody, let's do the let's do the pose. And it was his idea. Yeah. So. Yeah, so you and I did the pose, and we took the picture, and then he turned around, and he, he shook my hand again, and he said, give your niece my best. And I was yeah. like, thank you, I will. Yeah. So he's a really, really nice guy. I think for our listeners, we should also explain that we were not doing the Paddington pose, uh, <laughs> but the the the, the, tradition, the traditional 12th Doctor's arms outreached, hand exposed kind of pose, which right. you can see now on our Facebook page, which I was very excited to be able to upload a couple of days ago that was really cool and actually the way that they did photography this weekend was really great um they would take your picture they would get printed almost immediately and then there was just a little web address on the back and it says you know in a couple i don't know this evening your photos will be available and you can go in and you can look at everybody's photos 
Um, and then you can just click and download yours or <laughs> anybody else's if you really want to collect other people's uh, Capaldi photos. Um, <laughs> but they're really clear. So I, in the past, you know, you'd get like a USB or they'd give you an address and they'd email it to you. You just have access to it, which is really good. So I've downloaded it on every device I have. So uh, I'm definitely showing off me and Capaldi. That was really cool. I was really, it was a lot of fun. I'm really glad that you came up with that suggestion. Um, so we were pretty buzzing by that point in time. Oh, yeah. I mean, Very I think much. by the time we came down the stairs, it was like 3 o'clock. You didn't go to the Michelle Gomez panel, right? No, I was on cloud nine. I had to call home. I was like, yeah. oh, my God. I, I, <laughs> you know, my wife already knew that I was meeting Pierre Capaldi, but when it actually happened, I was like, oh, my God, this was so cool. I, you know, had to call. Um, and... I took a little, another little lap around, uh, you know, looking at the different vendor tables and going into the vendor, the dealer's room and all this kind of stuff. And I came back out and was walking around and happened to be coming up by the uh, Pixel Who table and saw you standing there waving your arms in the air, <laughs> flagging me down. And I was like, what's going on? So uh, I got a text from, well, I see the, the problem is I didn't know who the text was from because for whatever reason, it didn't recognize the number. Uh, but I got a text that just says, do you want to interview William Russell? And of course I went, yes, where, when, send. And then I went, wait, who is this? Send. Uh, and of course is Angela Pritchett, who was on Galfrey Pirate Radio with me some years back. And she's um, the, kind of the head of the press going forward with the Regeneration Who. And she said that they wanted to do an interview and they particularly wanted to get William Russell on a podcast, but also wanted to advertise that his son was going to be on a show, uh, was going to be on a, had a theater presentation and want to talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. And so we did this texting back and forth, trying to figure out when the best was, because he was signing at that time. So I talked with Jesse, his handler, and then Rob, who his, his agent who's helping with him. And boy, both of those guys, incredibly accommodating. Uh, we managed yeah. to get a room and we got 10 minutes to talk with William Russell like, not just on a stage, we got to sit across from him in a nice room with a great view. And you know what? We got it. We got the clip. So let's just go ahead and play it. We're joining you from Baltimore, Maryland today and Regeneration Who number four. Uh, our guest today is a star of both stage and screen, but listeners will know him best as that most noble man of action, Ian Chesterton, William Russell. Welcome to Who and Company. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And particularly since the sun has come with me. <laughs> now, I mean, really, we've had nothing but sunshine. And uh, after the winter in Europe, it's been a bit grim this year. This is marvelous. Yes. Have you gotten a chance to explore Baltimore at all outside Not of the convention? Not really, I'm afraid. No. Well, you have a great view that we're looking at here. We can see the bay and a, a, yes. what looks like a nice ship. And Yes. Do you know the name of the ship? I'm going to just call it Nice Ship for right now because I, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. No, no, but it looks for, I had a feeling they fired a cannon yesterday. Wow. Did they? I wonder if they did. I go and ask them. 
I mean, <laughs> considering that it's it's facing towards Ripley's Believe It or Not, that might not be the best approach, but it might not have been an actual, <laughs> uh, might not have been a proper <laughs> cannonball. <laughs> I don't think it was, but you could see they have the guns only on the uh, this side. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So that would be the starboard side. Starboard side. Starboard side. Yes. Starboard side. Assuming the boat is facing that way away from us, yeah. if it's facing towards its port. Yeah. You know what? Welcome to nautical talk. Uh, <laughs> I apologize for that tangent. Uh, well, one of the things we do on our show is talk about Doctor Who, but we also talk about uh, other things other than Doctor Who that you're interested yeah. in. Uh, and you were in a show called uh, Sir Lancelot. That's right. I so, did Sir Lancelot before. I was a noble knight before I was uh, Ian Chesterton. A noble teacher. <laughs> and a knight in his own, which we, actually on the show you were, you, you did become knighted, didn't you? Ian Chesterton became knighted. That's what he goes. You, you pick him up at the start, and he's on his way, uh-huh. hoping you know, <laughs> that it's going to happen. And uh, it does eventually, yes. That's right. That's right, the Knight of Jaffa. Yeah. So t- could you tell us a little bit about your experiences on the production of Sir Lancelot? On Sir La- well, Sir Lancelot was produced um, in the garden of uh, the producer who had come over from the States and um, bringing her family with her. And... Uh, so we all met, and we were doing everything in her garden. It was a very big, spacious garden outside, I think, Isha, and um, very beautiful place. So I thought, this is wonderful. I should get lots of riding in and everything like that. But they wanted a lot of chat because they have a story to tell, right. don't they? And uh, the story was predominant at the beginning. And when uh, Lancelot is coming and hoping that he will become one of the knights of the round table. But, and the but was, you know, all wicked men working on the other side. So uh, we we enjoyed the move up to that. Mm -hmm. And... uh, then uh, he finally is discovered by the king, knighted, and uh, he is now Sir Lancelot. And that was wonderful. <laughs> See? And then, uh, then I have more adventures. Right. And um, it was fun. It was quite great fun to do. But I didn't get much time on the GGs. Oh, yeah? No, because, you see, the Jews would show me arriving uh-huh. at the castle and leaving the castle or being involved with other people in the castle. And that was it. Yeah. You know, so that could be done by anybody. Sure. As, uh, in a medieval costume with my helmet on and everything else. So that's what happened. Did you have to wear a full suit of armor for shots? Oh, it's wonderful. I arrived in New York. And uh, they had said, just, you know, do the change at the last possible minute. So I'm sitting there with this family, very nice family. We chatted away about this and that and the children and everything. And uh, I kept looking at my watch thinking, 
I know I've got to get into that uh, <laughs> metal and all this. And eventually, I uh, said, I, you'll excuse me now, I'll, I'll see you in a moment. And I went and changed in the loo. And the, the loo, of course, is very small. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't really just And I was clanking and clanking and clanking. <laughs> and eventually, when I came back, and the whole family rose and walked away. <laughs> Wait, while you came out or while you were in the loo making no, all that noise? No, well, I was that... a, a, a different person. You see, I was a, a knight with armor and a helmet and, and things, steel things over my mouth, you know. <laughs> it was funny. But it was my reaction, it was my first uh, professional reaction. <laughs> New York, oh, wow. and, and so uh, we had to change back out of that because I said I'm not going to march through customs. In, you know, <laughs> uh, what do we do then? And so we changed. They gave me time to change, but by then all the other passengers had gone, and uh, so I had the the run of the mill really, and uh, it was okay. So you're in your suit of armor. Did they give you a real sword? Well, oh yes, that sword was the most important part of it. And of course the sword was changed immediately because the sword weighed a ton, Oh, you know, and was this long. Mm -hmm. In those days, the sword was a slashing thing, cut through armor and everything and bones. And um, so I had these fights all designed by an armorer, he was a, a nice old chap, and he tried to do the original thing, the big swings and everything, mm -hmm. but the camera couldn't contain it, and so it'd be much better if you could sort of stand there and bring clank, clank, clank. Mm -hmm. He said that nobody went clink, clank, clank with those swords. They're about nine feet long, and you know, the weight is terrific, and the handle is about this big. Yeah. That's massive. So uh, that was our first lesson. But nevertheless, when we came to do the series, I had very nice light, had, had short, short swords. Sure. And, uh, which wasn't correct. No. At all, but, uh, you know. Oh, that's a shame, because television is usually so historically accurate. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was not historically accurate. <laughs> Lancelot. But Lancelot was a great deal of fun. Mm -hmm. So I did get on the horse sometimes. Oh, yeah. So, yes. <laughs> but only for the still shots, usually. Uh, were you an experienced rider? Did you, did you have no, prior no, experience? No, no, no. I had been practicing. Uh, when I knew I was going to do it, I used to go to the park uh, <coughs> and, um, and go every day. And uh, I loved it. It was marvelous, but uh, <laughs> it was not to be really. Yeah, it's very difficult to fit these things into a schedule. Right. When you've got a story to tell, it's twenty-five minutes or less. You've got really, and uh, it was hard for the writers, I think. Well, uh, you're also a star of the stage done a lot of plays and everything and um, and you've also you have a son that's an yeah. actor now yeah but my, my son he's doing so well he's marvelous he's going to be at Wyndham's theater 
Wyndham Theatre is uh, a very famous London theatre just by Leicester Square tube station. And uh, it backs onto another station where, funnily enough, it was the first London theatre I had acted in. And it was Alec Guinness's Hamlet. Oh, wow. So, you know, that was the, the, the sort of shows that we did. And in the in the in that theatre, so I'm sure his show will be successful, with uh, Andrew Molina and uh, and Alfred Enoch. Oh, cool! Very cool. cool, and that's yeah. that's coming up soon this year, isn't it? Yes, this year. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll definitely make sure that any of our international listeners who, who, who hear this <laughs> go and check it out. Yes. I mean, even yes. even if it's I, not, I, I think it will be. Quite so this is going to be May through July then. July, yeah. That's right. Alfred yes, Molina. I mean, you can't you can't go wrong with that. That's no. Phoenix. That's great. And he's playing the uh, the actor. My son's playing the the silent at the beginning servant, not servant, but a young man who's got the job to clear up and do all those things. <laughs> And finally, he delivers his opinion of uh, Mr. Roscoe's nice. <laughs> strange paintings, you know. Oh, that's going to be so cool. That's eh? going to be great. And so it's an argument there. Yeah, yeah. It's really engaged. So it would be a good play. Wonderful. Well, William Russell, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and joining us today. We well, really, really appreciate it. it is, thank you very much for asking me. It has been an honor. <laughs> thank you. Once again, uh, that would not have been possible without Andrew Pritchett and Jesse and Rob. Thank you, all of you. We owe you big time for that one. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah, meeting Capaldi was one thing. Um, but, I mean, Capaldi was one of the main reasons to go to this convention. Uh, yeah. This is the first new Who doctor I had gotten a chance to meet. But the moment they announced that William Russell was going to be there, I, I I, was in. You know, that that was the reason to go. And the fact that I got to sit down next to him and get a picture with him, Amazing. The man, the man just exudes so much energy. He is such a part of Doctor Who history. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm squeeing just a little bit, <laughs> just thinking about it, and the fact that we got a chance to. I think, I think our excitement shows in the interview. I think you can hear it in our voices how how happy we are. Um, you know what I didn't know. So Sorry. Alfie Enoch, his son, is much younger than he is. Uh, didn't when he was explaining, you know, he's the young man in this in this piece. Uh, Alfie Enoch played Dean Thomas in the Harry Potter movies. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is kind of cool. I, you know, immediately afterwards, and it's uh, Alfie Enoch and Alfred Molina. That just that's a that's certainly worth taking a look at for those who who are in the area and uh, get a chance to see. See theater. I know that you're going to be in the UK, and you're just going to miss it. Yep, we're going uh, in a couple of weeks, the uh, the eighth through the fifteenth. So, I, uh, his son's play is May through July. So, yeah, I'm just going to miss it. But yeah. sounds like a great one. Yeah, let's say absolutely. it's a two hander, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Uh, then we went and got dinner. <laughs> yeah, because it was I, five o'clock. Well, no. Well, first I I dipped into the uh, Six Doctor versus Valyard panel, which sure. is there was no moderator. It was just those two guys in there talking to each other, Colin Baker and Michael Jason, just back and forth. And um, I that was really great. Just 
you know, not having to sit there and answer questions and answer, they yeah. were just talking. They were just having a conversation and 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 then answering questions in the audience too, and of course cracking jokes back yeah. and forth. And uh, that was great. And by then, I really wanted to see the adventure panel with uh, Mark Strickson, which I'd seen years and years and years ago, because uh, he does a lot of uh, nature uh, like adventure shows and that kind of thing, uh, and. I really wanted to see that, but it was five o'clock, and I hadn't eaten since about eight thirty that morning. <laughs> because when you go to cons, you are on the go the entire time. Yeah, uh, you know, to eat, you pretty much have to leave, and I was starving, so uh, uh, that's when I headed out and tried the Hard Rock Cafe in Baltimore, and it was an hour and a half wait. <laughs> so I left. <laughs> I went to uh, Philip's Seafood next door, and the the cheapest thing on the menu was 35 bucks and i was i left there and um <laughs> found a place that you told me about called shake stack uh shake stack shake shack shake shack yeah that was great yeah it was great it really was yeah I, I went there uh i i couldn't concentrate on anything at that point in time it was just i needed food uh and so managed to get some grub before coming back into uh, the panels at eight o'clock. Yeah, so so I had a burger there, uh-huh. and uh, I left, met up with you, and not maybe an hour or two later, we came back <laughs> <laughs> with uh, Simon Fraser and his family, and um, later Nathan and um, Lou. Yeah, went back there, so I got a <laughs> shake this time. Yeah, and you guys, you guys got the same burger that I did. It's, it's great. Yeah, place. it was really, really good. Um, then at at eight o'clock, I I went to the Puppet Capaldi Puppets Props Punk Rock and Pro Tips hosted by our friend Valerie Meese, mm-hmm. uh, which was awesome. Man, yeah. she she can corral a crowd. They were having a blast, <laughs> and uh, but at the same time, we also wanted to see Simon in action. So I think. We we split our time. I think I think it was fairly successfully because I I watched half an hour of the puppet panel and then I went over to watch Simon do a, a live drawing and talking about his experiences working on Doctor Who and that both of those were really quite excellent. Just seeing somebody draw live like that is amazing to me, and yeah. it's just so quickly, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went and at nine o'clock and did a a panel called Oh No Who Didn't hosted by uh, Keir Hansen. I actually he had asked me to do it and I said, I don't know what's going to be happening, but I'll come by. And if you need me, um, I, I will be available for you. And, but here's the situation. Everybody, but one showed up for this panel. The person who didn't show up was Terry Malloy. Terry Malloy didn't show up because Janet Fielding had kidnapped his teddy bear. (laughs) Now at this point in time in the evening, I don't know if Terry knew that it was Janet who had done it, just that the bear was gone. Uh, and so because of that, he he missed the panel, and I filled in for him. Now, there's more to that Terry Malloy-Janet Fielding story for later. Um, I, I've never seen anyone be quite so cold and vicious as Janet Fielding. Uh, <laughs> but, but we'll get to that uh, after this. Um, oh, no, who didn't? Super fun uh, improv Doctor Who panel. I'm pretty sure that is... I did not realize they were recording it. Of course they were mm-hmm. recording it. It's GPR. But um, it should be available within the next couple of weeks uh, if you visit Galfrey Public Radio. 
um, that panel will be available. I, I will say that um, a lot more profanity was espoused by me <laughs> than I'm normally used to doing on a podcast. Again, not realizing that it was being recorded. So if you want to hear me shriek profanity as Gilbert Godfrey or Christopher Walken, then that <laughs> uh, that might be the, uh, worth giving a listen. Um, yeah, and then that was it for me. Yeah, I, I missed that panel because I was also asked to be a guest on a panel at the same time. Uh, series 10, Hit or Miss. Uh, Heather McHale asked me if I would be on her and uh, Joy Piedmont, who was on our show last month, and um, a lady named uh, Irene. Oh, uh, yeah, Irene's great. Irene was fantastic. Um, <laughs> I, I, that was my first time meeting her, and she was so sweet. And um, Irene Richard is her name. And, yeah, we just sat there and went down and, you know, what's your favorite episode of Series 10? What's your least favorite? Um, what did you think of the series as a whole? Different things like that. And yeah. um, I was a little nervous being my first time being a guest at a panel. I've moderated one before. This was my first time being a guest, but uh, it went so smoothly. Heather does such a great job moderating. She does. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. That was that was cool that you got a chance to do that. And I'm actually also glad that you weren't there to see me make a ass of myself. Um, <laughs> for the other one. Um, after that panel, I I went to my hotel room. Like I was done. I think I was in bed by eleven o'clock Saturday night. That might have been the least social I've ever been at a Doctor Who convention. <laughs> I had a headache. Uh, I wasn't feeling great, so I just went to bed. Yep. Same here. I, I right after my panel, I, I walked around for a couple of minutes and then I, I left. And um, the next morning, came in about about the same time, ten ten fifteen, and uh, Heather was hosting another panel on the main stage with Mark Strickson and Matthew Waterhouse, living in the eighties. So I got to see some of that. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, <laughs> I felt like there was ah. Uh, how best to describe that? I felt that there was a lot of like, well, at my time on Doctor Who, this was <laughs> happening. Well, on my time. And I, I don't know if it was like a friendly rivalry thing that they got going on or if that was yeah. entirely like they were just playing with one another. <laughs> it was it was neat. <laughs> I tried to take some pictures for Heather so that she would have you know some really cool evidence. And uh, Matthew Waterhouse, it, it just every single one of them looks like he's just a, a, a luminous beam of light. <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. I just wasn't in a good position for, to take pictures. I did not go to a single panel the rest of the time until it was time to, to do ours. Oh. Yeah, I went right after that. I went to um, the classic and new continuing adventures of the fourth Doctor, which had Paul Mars, uh, the writer Paul Mars, uh, John Leeson, and Jason Hay Gallery from Big Finish. And it wasn't on a main stage. It was just a small room, and it was very like I don't want to say intimate, but it was personal. <laughs> it was uh, very personal, very small. Um, maybe you know twenty people there, and I think that was one of my favorite panels of the entire weekend. It That's was awesome. so fun. John John Leeson is such a really nice guy and very very funny, and he told some really funny stories in there about. Being K nine on the show, but also uh, in the Big Finish studio recently doing the Fourth Doctor adventures, and 
they answered questions from the audience, and uh, Paul Morris had a lot of great stories also of uh, how they got Tom back into it before Big Finish when he did the BBC audios. Um, lots of good stuff in there. And John Leeson told his uh, canine story about doing the crossword, which I'd never yeah. heard. Yeah. Oh, really? Hilarious. And I tried to record it on my phone. And the whole time I'm standing there recording that that one story, I was like, oh, my God, I'm, this is great. I can't believe I got this story. I looked down. I forgot to hit the record button. <laughs> <laughs> so I missed it. I was damn. So, uh, <laughs> well, but, uh, at Long Island Who this past November, I, I interviewed uh, John, um, and he told that story. It was based off of his biography, which um, – I had read for it as well. So I had heard it before. And if you want a copy of him telling it, I'm pretty sure that interview was recorded by the LI staff. I, I Now that I'm realizing it, I haven't actually inquired about getting my a copy for myself. So if I get one, I'll happily send it to you. And you can you can just copy it from there if you need to. <laughs> yeah. Did you do anything else between uh, then and our 2 o'clock panel? Um, I... Popped over to the next room and saw quite a bit of Lisa Greenwood um, being interviewed uh, about Big Finish. So that cool. was fun. That was at 12 o'clock. At 1 o'clock, I took a break and yeah. was kind of walking around and um, ran into you. And we were getting ready to uh, to do our thing at 2 o'clock. So. Yeah. Right, well, let's go ahead and jump into that. At uh, 2 o'clock, Simon Fraser joined us for our Who and Company's first live panel. Were you nervous? A little bit, because I've never... I knew we couldn't edit. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I knew that, um, you know, I didn't know how many people were going to be there. Uh, uh, but it, it went really well. It did. Simon, Simon's a really cool guy to, to talk to and hang out with, and um, he had a lot to say. Well, you know, let's just go ahead and play it. All right. All right, so our guest today speaks several languages, including Italian, French, and Swahili. But you know him as a comic artist who's produced such works as Judge Dredd, The Adventures of Nikolai Dante in 2000 AD, and of course, the 11th Doctor series at Titan Comics, and a dapper dresser, <laughs> Mr. Simon Fraser. Hello, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Simon, Simon. Do you, does everyone ever uh, ask you which doctor you're cosplaying as? <laughs> no, weirdly, somebody asked my daughter that yesterday, and I'm like, she's just dressed up nice. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> I think my dress, my dress, my dress sense does somehow come in from like watching Tom Baker as a kid and feeling like that's how you want to be as an adult and dress up like flamboyantly a little bit. Are you wearing knee-high boots? I'm not, but I'm not averse to that idea. Yeah, you just got to find a comfortable pair, right? I yeah, I mean it's challenging enough finding shoes that fit me. So I was like knee-high boots. That's probably a little, a little bit too far, but uh, yeah, no. Listen, next year, I'm not, I'm not I'm not saying no to that. <laughs> so uh, let's go right back to the beginning. How did you first get into Doctor Who? Oh boy, oh, you mean like as a kid? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay, so. Um, my parents emigrated and we all went, the family went to Canada when I was quite young, when I was three or four. Uh, and we stayed in Canada for three years until my mother had had enough of Canada. And we all then came back again. So we came back to Scotland in 1976. So I think the first abiding memory of Doctor Who I have was, I think, the, the Sontaran experiment, which must have been a repeat because it wasn't on in 76. So it's like that's the first Doctor Who I remember seeing. Uh, and I immediately fell, fell in love with Sarah Jane Smith mm -hmm. and was completely obsessed with Tom Baker because he was obviously like, 
he's a lot like my dad, who's kind of an absentee dad all the time. He's, he was working very hard. And it was just like this kind of like this larger than life uh, figure. And it was like Tom Baker become, became sort of my surrogate father figure. And um, that's my, my love affair with Doctor Who started there. And I became more or less obsessed with it. Um, but as I'm, I'm talking to people about this over the, over the weekend, it's like, it's not Doctor Who, the show that I was obsessed with. Uh, it's much more the target novelizations. Mm -hmm. Because those I could read and reread and reread. Whereas back in the 70s and 80s, there was no video. I couldn't watch the TV show again. I could only watch, have vague memories. And I realized that a lot of my vague memories aren't very accurate. Because this <laughs> is when I was like eight years old. So I was like, I have to go and watch all this stuff again. Not that I haven't done it recently, but some things I think I think I thought I saw, and I haven't. It's like I, because the, I actually read the books, right? And the books were good enough to convince me that I'd seen the show, and I haven't seen it. So it's like, <laughs> were you a reader at that time? I mean, oh, God, obviously, yeah. you're, you're admitting to reading, but the yeah. question is like, were you a reader exclusively to the target novelizations, or did you like to read outside of? The oh, I read everything. Well? I, yeah, I, okay. My my dad had a big science fiction book collection, so basically from the age of eight onwards, I just consumed everything. I just voraciously read through everything because I was a social outcast, like you know, all the finest people in the world, yep. um, and just like spent all my time just burning my way through like uh, Asimov and Harry Harrison and Heinlein and all this stuff. And the target novelizations were, were perfectly pitched to my reading range at that time. Cool. So I, like I literally had, I think I still have them. My mum won't throw them out; they're on the shelf like that. And I like I was trying to get my daughter interested, and she's like, "Nope, not interested <laughs> at all." It's like, "Oh well, okay." They can do, end up in a, a jumble sale sometime. Do you have? them all is that something that you're like yes i'm going to collect all of them i, I wasn't i didn't quite have that no i wasn't quite that far it was very very hard to be a fan back in the 70s because you didn't there weren't checklists or there right. was, maybe there were but they didn't exist that i had access to i think you had to be a member of like a fan club uh -huh. and probably pay dues and get like photo like a xerox um, um lists and things like that mm -hmm. so probably they existed but it certainly wasn't anything i could anywhere near the, the first time I really encountered Doctor Who fandom was when Doctor Who Weekly came out. Right. Which was the uh, comic magazine. Right. And again, I'm very strong because they used to do summaries of, of stories like the Celestial Toymaker and the Crotons and all these things, I, which I never, never would have been able to see. So you're reading these summaries and, I'm, and they're so vividly written that I'm pretty sure I saw them and I didn't. Um, and then, of course, there were comic books in there. I, I'm very well aware, yeah. And those comics... I mean, those comics are kind of why I'm here. Right. Again, it's like Doctor Who wasn't so much the TV show. It, is, it was very the core of the TV show, but a lot of it was the comics, which I read and reread and reread and reread. And I remember like whole panels and characters and situations. I mean, I can almost draw them from memory. Mm -hmm. And I haven't really read them since I was nine or ten. I just did a reread of the, yeah. the full run uh, in the last couple of months. Yeah. They're so good they hold up. Because that's great. how I came to the yeah, fandom yeah, yeah, yeah. is through those comics. I mean, it's like this, you're talking about the A-list of like British creators of the time. Uh, you've got uh, Pat Mills, you've got um, Steve Moore, Alan Moore, right. did some of his early stuff in, on Doctor Who, which is great. Um, Steve Dillon yeah. did some really great backups. Um, David, uh, David Lloyd was working on them. And of course, Dave Gibbons was doing the lead strip. And it was great stuff. You read back and it's like uh, one of my favorite comics ever is um, uh, it's uh, the um, uh, Mick McMahon drawn um, Junkyard Demon. Oh, yeah. Which is so good. And it's like I wish they could turn that into a show, the actual show. I mean, they've, they've kind of kind of skipped around it and almost done it. But it's like basically, basically they find this busted old Cyberman and junkie and they want to try and salvage it. And they don't understand what they have and how dangerous it is and yeah. what it starts to try and do and it's like it's really powerful it's beautifully drawn by uh, Mick McMahon who's one of my heroes and it's just like it's so powerful in my head that story again I think I've seen it as a TV show but it's not um, people mm. refer to it a lot on the TV show 
I picked up the Watchmen for the first time and went, oh, really? oh it's the guy who does Doctor Who. <laughs> like, it, it's, yeah, that guy. Gibbons is not. I mean, it is now. Like you know, it's it's been forty years, but it, at that time, this was definitely the guy who used to draw the Doctor. That was. I mean, that's yeah, like, yeah. And you see, I mean, Dave Gibbons is, is. I mean, his characters tend to look a lot like Dave Gibbons. And he draws Tom Baker as kind of looking a lot like Dave Gibbons. I've never looked up what Dave, Dave, does he Dave Gibbons draws himself? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he kind of he kind of draws himself. The jawline's always kind of his, and it just kind of works for Tom Baker. So he's really got Tom Baker really well. Uh, less successful maybe with Peter Davison, but because um, Peter Davison's just this kind of oval, um, and he's kind of like almost featureless. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, no, he's basically drawing himself, and that totally works if you're drawing Tom Baker because Dave Gibbons and Tom Baker kind of share the same shaped face. Is it a round, open, pleasant face? Is that, it is, is that how it's described? It's, it's is, good, yeah. Is, is it both of the target novelizations? Um, he has a round, pleasant, open face or something? Is that, or see, is I don't know. See, the thing about Tom Baker is his face is actually No, not terrible. Baker, but um, Davison. Oh, Davison, yeah. Davison's, Davison's just like the, the, the charm. The, the nice boy that you hope your daughter will bring back home. You know, that's like, oh, he's so sweet. It's never going to happen. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but it's like that. It's got that kind of like open, yeah, exactly what you said. Like, guileless. <laughs> so is that what made you uh, want to get into comic art and, and how did that yeah. lead you to drawing to Absolutely. I mean that and 2008 which I was yeah. reading at the same time uh-huh. again same people Dave Gibbons was drawing for it Mike McMahon was drawing for it uh, written by Pat Mills Joan Wagner Alan Grant um, Steve Moore was in there Alan Moore did some work for that I mean all these people who kind of influenced my worldview. Um, they were all working for 2008 and Doctor Who magazine because that was they were the people employing at the time yeah um, they were the British comic industry as it is and 2000 AD kind of still is well the, the, the fascinating thing about 2000 AD is how little it has crossed the ocean like it's just not a really a <laughs> thing here like it's so it, it's influence is still I mean all the artists and who, who read it yep. yes but yep. I mean like we've had two Judge Dredd movies and you know like oh. that's sort of it right like it was funny um a few years ago, uh, there was a kind of push by 2008. They got a new publisher and they decided to push into the American market. So they did some focus group testing in, uh, in a Brooklyn comic shop I used to go to. Uh, and uh, they got some, some guys around, got some guys in who were like regulars, and gave them some dread books. And um, the reaction was kind of interesting. It's like, <laughs> says, this is, guy picks it up and says, I don't read no story about no damn cop. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's like, that's, you're kind of missing the point. But it was kind of, it was very difficult to break that. It wasn't a superhero. It was, it was a little bit difficult to. The, the early dread stuff is a little bit sort of scratchy. It's a little bit kind of. It seems a bit abrasive. Yeah. 2080 is kind of reputed as, as this punk comic, and that's almost entirely due to the first so few years, which were drawn by these like some like Carlos Esquerra and Mick McMahon, who were like really kind of going for it, sort of expressionistically. It was it's quite aggressive looking, and quite sort of spiky and nasty, and that's really where the reputation of, of punk comic comes from. It's not that way now at all. It's rather safe now. I think I saw. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, don't don't not employ me. Um, but um, uh, it's it just that kind of it 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 doesn't it's, it doesn't register well to a modern eye. It looks weird and and aggressive and angry. Hmm. Um, and I think maybe it's hard to get past that. Though I mean Brian Boland obviously is just one right. of the best comic artists ever, and his stuff is just gorgeous. So yeah, it's it's, it's kind of you got It's kind of easy to judge a, a comic by its cover hmm. uh, if Boland's Boland's on there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like, oh yeah, I think I think the stuff he did on Judge Dredd is some of the best comics mm-hmm. ever drawn. Frankly, it's so beautiful. Some of the best panels, like sh- just beautiful, beautiful drawing. So, what led you to uh, Titan and Eleventh Doctor? Ah, uh, well, I mean, I heard that Titan were taking over the license because IDW lost the license. BBC took it away from them, 
uh, that emission. Um, but it was uh, the, the idea, BBC wanted to bring it back uh, to, to British creators because they, they wanted that voice. I think they, they felt that IDW stuff wasn't quite as, as wasn't, didn't have quite the right tone. Right. I believe. Don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. Um, but that's what I was told. Um, and um, they wanted to get, so Titan pitched for it. I believe they paid quite a lot of money for it. Nick Lando wanted the license to sort of like launch the new series of Titan comics. Sure. Titan's been around for a long time. Yeah. Very long established British publisher of kind of nerdy geeky stuff. Um, and they really wanted to kind of push into comics and they wanted the Doctor Who license. So they, I think Nick Lando paid a lot of money for it. And he, his pitch was they were going to get British writers and get the tone very much um, back in, in line with how, how the show is. Um, so to that end, they hired uh, Nick Abadzis, uh, Rob Williams, Robbie Morrison, uh, Al Ewing, um, who are, well, one, all my buddies. Uh, and um, they, they were asked, like, who do you want to work with? And they said, me. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> all those beers I bought you went down well. Um, so yeah, that, that was how I got the job. And everyone sort of said, yep, Simon, because they all know I'm a big Doctor Who dork I am. So, I mean, so you're, you're on the project. How do, did you get any say in which doctor? Because it started off the two launches with, with 10 and 11. Did yeah, you I was told to draw for both, and they, they went for my 11 uh -huh. because my tenant wasn't too strong. Uh, still, I still struggle with him, actually. He's, he's a difficult doctor to draw. Because you're not an Italian woman. That's it. That's yeah, it. That's <laughs> my, my anecdote, which is much polished, is that I, I, the only time I've actually met David Tennant was um, that uh, we so talked. I said, you know, I, I pitched to draw your comic, and I didn't get away. I couldn't. You're quite, you're quite difficult to draw. And he says, but um, the, the, weirdly enough, the people who do draw your comic are all Italian women. There's like three or four of them, uh, and they're all friends. And he says, I've always gotten really well with Italians. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's like, so, sure. Um, he's got a very kind of fine elfin face. I mean, see, women seem to find a very affinity with his face. Maybe it's sort of a feminine face. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm, it's a question I'm kind of asking. I don't know what it is about his face. It's an interesting face. It's not classically... It's, Pretty, but it's not classically pretty. So it's got an interesting jawline. It's, it's, it's a very interesting face, and he's a very good actor. Well, I mean, and he's interesting to draw. But I, I, I'm, I'm not regretting doing Matt Smith. I love Matt Smith. Matt Smith has an interesting face. Oh my god! And <laughs> one that seems to befuddle it's... many artists. I mean, you, that seems like something you. It's almost like an undergraduate degree. You kind of have to do your, your your time into it to get get it down. Somebody said, interestingly, that, that Matt Smith is basically a young man designed by old men from memory. <laughs> um, it's, like, it's like, yeah, you kind of get that. He's got this amazing forehead which sits over his eyes. So you can't, if you're actually looking at photographs, you can't draw him from photographs. And people do, and it doesn't really work because you can't see his eyes. And if you watch him on the screen, it works because he's moving all the time. And you get an expression. His body is very expressive. He's actually physical... Um, He's very, very good at physical comedy. You watch him move around, it's very artful. And he, he sort of says, oh, I'm very, very clumsy. And it's like, don't believe him, he's not. He's actually very, very, he moves very, very well. He kind of like constantly doing these kind of like Harpo Marx things. And he moves his head in very sort of um, uh, powerful ways. And you feel that you see his eyes, but you don't. Um, so I had to, because I don't have the luxury of movement, I, don't, I can't do that with, with what I'm drawing. I have to. I basically had to kind of open up his face a bit and draw him like with more mm. expressive eyes. So my my um, my ten is the tenth Doctor. It's not Matt Smith. It's the tenth Doctor. That's what I say. He's my version of Matt mm -hmm. Smith. He's not actually Matt Smith. Yeah. Because um, I have to. I have to be able to use him. He has to be my my thing, my plaything. Yeah. And you have to kind of redesign the character to fit. 
to fit my, my, uh, my, the way I want to express things. Comparing him to say like someone like Capaldi who does, there's a lot of expression oh, going on the face, but you also have almost the central look to Capaldi is here, like yeah. right here, the eyes yeah. and the eyebrows. Matt Smith doesn't have much in the way of eyebrows. No, he has hardly any eyebrows. And he doesn't need them. He's yeah. got a brow that's so strong, yeah, yeah. he doesn't need eyebrows. And so, but you don't have that kind of cut off, you have the brow coming in here and then you have the eyes, but there's no, yeah. like, uh, I mean, you can make him look like pretty much any any way. He's he's a very very ex interesting head. I mean, I was I think if if I did him again, I'll probably sit down and actually sculpt um, a head of him, so I can light it interestingly because it just lights so well. If you see him on the screen, it's like it's amazing how he, how the angles light and, and it's. I mean, the, the the downside of the Matt Smith era for drawing it for me isn't Matt Smith. Matt Smith is glorious. Um, it's the TARDIS. Matt Smith's TARDIS is horrible. It's the worst thing to draw. It's just this sort of massive bric-a-brac. It's just like, oh, and the lighting's all over the place. And you've got to try and like, again, I reinvented it in my own way because they have to make it something I can actually recreate every, every week, every day. Um, but you're watching the show and it's like, there's all these lighting going on around him and you see his face moving through lighting because it's constant, everything, every surface in that TARDIS seems to reflect. So it must've been a nightmare. I believe it was a nightmare to light. And that's why they replaced it so quickly. <laughs> so, you, if you have a preference between drawing the TARDIS and drawing Daleks, which one are you? Which one are you? <laughs> Matt Smith, and, uh, sorry, Matt Smith's TARDIS and Daleks. Well, which one my Matt Smith TARDIS is actually quite easy to draw. Okay. I can do that quite easily because I simplified it and rationalized it and made sure. it work. And I, I, the, the wonderful thing about the TARDIS is because we know it's a, it's a malleable structure. It changes itself. So I can like cheat it all the time and it's mm -hmm. kind of okay. Nobody, nobody will question you because it's like, oh, suddenly there's a room off to the side where you can make tea. It's like, oh, of course there is. <laughs> uh, nobody questions that at all. <laughs> it's the TARDIS. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, it, it is an interesting environment to draw the TARDIS. And it's basically a lot of the stories I drew happened in the TARDIS. So it became a... <sighs> Something of the bane of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Just drawing the same damn thing all the time. The space, the same space all the time, trying to make it interesting. We have a lot of, a lot of very interesting companions in, in that oh, series, God, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are what in particular you, you really Certainly enjoy. season two, the second year. Well, the second year, the, the fun thing for me was uh, having Absalom Dark. Yeah. Absalom Dark, Dalek killer. For those who don't know, we're talking, we're talking about the... The British uh, Doctor Who comics, the early ones in the, the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, drawn by Dave Gibbons and company. Well, um, they had these support stories. Uh, and one of the support stories was called Absalom Dark, Dalek Killer, which was created by Steve Moore and Steve Dillon. It, Absalom Dark is basically a one-note character. He's a complete sociopath, psychopath, um, <laughs> who runs around with a, a chain sword, which is basically, as you imagine, a giant sword which cuts through things, uh, and a blaster. And he's sentenced to death or decay. And DK means you're teleported to the nearest da Dalek-occupied planet and told to kill as many Daleks as you can before you get killed. But Absalom Dark, being a particular badass, uh, doesn't get killed. And he just keeps killing Daleks. And he meets a princess, and the princess can't stand him because he's obnoxious and hairy and disgusting. Uh, and um, he kind of saves her life, and she falls in love with him, and she gets shot by a Dalek. So he then decides to go across the universe and destroy every single Dalek in the universe. That's it. There is no subtlety to this story. His motivation is, my girlfriend is dead, uh, and I hate Daleks. Uh, so we said, oh, great. And I read this story as like nine-year-old boy, and it's like, awesome, chainsaw, <laughs> ah, Daleks, ah, brilliant. And it's drawn by Steve Dillon, who's one of my favorite artists ever. Um, it's like, we got to bring him back. I'm like, yes, it's so exciting. Um, and I draw him in the, drawing him in the TARDIS, like, hello, Doctor. And of course, the Doctor knows who he is. And it's just like, ah. Uh. And that's fun. But then you've got the problem. You've got 
the TARDIS crew, it was like, at the moment, that time was Alice. Uh, there was uh, a couple of other characters in there. One of them was River Song. So you've got a lot, it was like five people in the TARDIS. And then Absalom Dark, who's this giant ball of hate standing in the TARDIS. And it's like, you can't do anything with him because he's too difficult. You can't, I mean, he's, I mean, I, you, you, you can't be doing things all the time. You can't be running around killing things all the time. But him standing around in the background is just distracting. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, he's just not a TARDIS crew member. He just like philosophically does not work. He should be out that door somewhere else killing Daleks or something. And so I'm constantly having to drum in the background and he's like scratching his ass. Or, <laughs> it's like Absalom Duck, not doing anything, not very well. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was a challenging thing. Uh, much as it was fun to bring him back, at the same time it was kind of frustrating. I bet. I bet. <laughs> Uh, as far as the process of comics, I've always wanted to know, like, how long does it take to produce one comic like, like that? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, we have to do them every month. The, the Titan books were, were, for some reason or other, they decided to do 15 a year uh, of each, each story, which is like, you know, 12 works. But 15 is a lot. So it means we had to have more um, fill-in artists. So I, the first year I was with Boo Cook, second year uh, with Warren, uh, Warren Police. And then Ian Culbert came in, so it was like we were sort of handing over to each other just so we could get the book done in time. I can do uh, 22 pages in a month, pencil ink, and then I do uh, pass on the colors because I like to have control. I'm a control freak. Mm. I like to have everything the way I want it to look uh, because if you a lot of I mean comics as you probably know are collaborative um, because we want to get 22 pages done a month, you have to break it down into clear coherent parts. So you have to have a penciler. You have to have an inker, and then you get the colorist, and you get a letterer, and of course the writer at the beginning, but you, and the editor has to put all this together and keep control of it. This is a system that was evolved by American publishers trying to get as much comics made as possible in the shortest possible time, maximizing you know, the talent you have available, and also keeping control of the process. Mm -hmm. So things, things don't go drastically wrong, because you can always get someone to patch up. If the pencils go badly wrong, you can get an inker to fix it. Right. If the colors, the colors can kind of patch up and fix things, you know, everyone can fix things right to the end. Um, I don't work that way because I'm British and weird and uh, difficult. Uh, so I pencil ink my own stuff, um, and then I have a friend who helps me color, and then do a final pass on the color. So I, I try and get all the, what you're seeing is what I want. Um, it's not what the editor wants; it's what I want. Um, and that's important to me. Um, so I can do all that in about a month, slightly less, but three weeks. Uh, but if you didn't have slightly more time, because unfortunately you. you it's very flexible. It's never quite, you know, some things take longer, some things take shorter. I always find trouble starting up, starting a project. So the first few months are really difficult. And then by the end of it, you're kind of, you're going like a train and I can bash things. I mean, I've done, done a whole 22 page comic in two weeks. I'm not proud. I'm not saying it was good work, but I did it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's how long it takes. <laughs> One of the things that we like to do on our program yes. Uh, is because we, we love talking about Doctor Who and we can do it all the time but we also know that when we have our guests on that Doctor Who is not the end all or nor the be all of their fandom and so we usually ask our guests to suggest a television program that is not Doctor Who that they would like to talk about would you please tell our audience <laughs> what show you have chosen and then explain to us why, why? you have chosen why did I that do this show to my, why did I do this to myself um uh, some years ago, I started watching Star Trek Enterprise when I had some loose, some free time, and it wasn't. It's not 
a good show. <laughs> I mean, it's got good things in it, and it's well-intentioned, and there's lots of interesting aspects to it, and it's certainly an interesting thing to talk about, because Star Trek, as we know, Star Trek is such a, a, a massive franchise, and the format is so well-known. Enterprise is kind of reputed to be the kind of like the, where it kind of fell down. Um, I don't think that's entirely true. I don't think that it didn't fall down, but creatively speaking, it, they, they made interesting choices sometimes. But uh, unfortunately, they relied a little bit too much on the formula. Ah. And it's really interesting watching Enterprise, and we're also watching Star Trek Discovery, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, Star Trek, Star, Trek, Star Trek Enterprise kind of reputedly killed the franchise, uh, and Discovery is the rebirth of the franchise. So basically looking at um, just, uh, Enterprise, which is a very old show, I mean, structurally speaking, and the format is, is the 60s. It's, 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 it's the original series. They're, they're aping the original series pretty accurately. And it's very that, that structure and the way everything works, the, 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 the character beats the moment. Everything is very classic Star Trek. Um, and Discovery really isn't. Uh, <laughs> and that's, you know, by necessity because, you know, TV has moved on. Right. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, the, you know the, the, the format of Enterprise is just, it just feels so kind of like safe and stolid comparison to, to Discovery because I really enjoyed Discovery because they really took risks and Enterprise doesn't really take risks. Having said that, yes. I haven't got very far into it. I'm only like end of season two. So okay. I couldn't, I wanted to watch the whole thing before coming on here. I tried, <laughs> I valiantly tried. I think there's just too much of it. Yeah. Uh, so 23, 20, something like 26 episodes a season or something. Mm -hmm. It's insane. Yeah. It's a huge amount there's of There's a lot of it. And it's, yeah. it, but it's only four seasons. Yeah. But if... If it feels like it's you know every season that you're watching is because it's it's even if it's aping that program, yeah, it is still taking place before the original series is supposed to take place. Supposedly, so not only it's, yes. you're, you're you're following a format, but you're also beholden to yeah. so many other yeah. seasons of other shows because you can't you're not sorry I shouldn't say can't because they did. <laughs> You're not supposed to bring in characters that are different. Right. Uh, you cannot cross because I I am I enjoy watching Star Trek. Mm -hmm. I have not watched Discovery yet. Right. I would love to be able to talk Discovery, but mm -hmm. considering that it's how brand new it is, it's better to talk about a program that has run its course. Right. So at least we can mm -hmm. we don't have to say what do you think it's going to be like going on to the next season, <laughs> um, unless of course you haven't watched the next season, which we could potentially mm -hmm. even though you could just a Wikipedia mm -hmm. page away from finding out those answers yourself. Yep. Um, but it is beholden to certain aspects of uh, fan continuity. And mm -hmm. it seems that as Doctor Who fans, we have a much looser grasp on continuity. Yeah. Because in, I think Moffat was said, like, everything is canon and nothing is. Yes. Uh, and demonstrates that on a regular basis mm -hmm. uh, in every other episode. But with Star Trek, there is a uh, yeah. just a vigorous latching on to continuity and they hold, hold pretty hold firm so it's one of the problems with Star Trek and, and I mean Star Trek culture in a way is, I think is there's a religious devotion to canon mm -hmm. yeah. and keeping it everything right and I think what they did with the, the with Enterprise and with Discovery is like putting them retro putting them back before the continuity of the original show is insane yeah mm -hmm. it's like they're just asking for trouble because this is exactly the sort of thing designed to drive Star Trek fans insane yeah um, because they're they're <laughs> very very observant of, of what is right and what is not right and who may who were and what it is Captain Pike this whatever that and it's like oh, why do that to them? why did they do that it's a, it's a creative choice that baffles me still um, and I would love to have a conversation with somebody about that because it's like, why did you make your life so much harder than it had to be? Yeah. Why don't you just do a show post 
uh, enterprise, so new next gen enterprise. That would have been just, just it would have worked. Would yeah. be a problem. Well, what do you uh, what do you like about enterprise? Is there is, is there like something? Enterprise. So you you make this choice to sit down and watch it. Yeah. You turn it on. Mm. You watch the pilot. Mm. What makes you mm -hmm. watch the next episode? I I really enjoy the premise. Um, I like the idea of space travel being difficult, dangerous, mm -hmm. um, scary as hell. Uh, and I like the idea that they were doing this in an experimental spaceship and they're going out there with equipment and technology that wasn't really tested. Mm -hmm. um, I think they largely dropped the ball on that, frankly. I think by large, oh, they, they, they settled into a groove and just like, you know, monster of the week kind of thing, you know, pr predicament of the week. And it was very, it became very traditional like that. And they didn't really dwell on the fact that what they're doing is all hugely experimental and dangerous and problematic. And they're, they're hitting, like, they're, they're discovering, they don't have the prime directive that That's one of the things about the show. They don't have the prime directive. They haven't established this um, etiquette for dealing with new civilizations and first contacts. So they're constantly making mistakes. And I feel that they should really have made worse mistakes. Yeah. I feel that people should, more people should have died and some horrible things could have happened and that would have been great drama. But they didn't. They kept it all very safe and very kind of like, eh, 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 week in, week out. And I feel that's a, a sad thing. Uh, but I love that idea of the ship not being quite ready for prime time. Um, and that's an attractive idea of it's written sci-fi to me. is like, you know, we know what technology is like. I mean, how many people here have got technology in their lives? Everybody. Yeah. Uh, and you know how reliable it is. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't ever do what you want it to do exactly. And sometimes it fails in just the wrong times. And I think that's what I want to see in a show. And I really wanted to see that in a Star Trek show. Unfortunately, Enterprise didn't provide that as much as I would have liked. Yeah. Um, they did other things, interestingly. And I like, I mean, I like the actors. They're good actors. They're, well, mostly good actors. Um, I think they relied again on like having you know the 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 efficient one, the the, the emotional one, and it's like the one who doesn't really want to be there. And it's like they they kind of they use slightly you know the same tropes. You know they have the the Vulcan, the mm -hmm. the sexy Vulcan. Like was it like, a terrible part? Uh, yeah. Julian Blaylock is stuck with this 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 character who's basically objectified to the whole thing. Yeah. It's just like ugh, that's wearing. That's definitely dated badly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and um, you know they, they they tried. Scott Bakula's quite good. I mean, he's reliable. It's just safe. It's just very, very mm -hmm. safe. You never feel there's any kind of sense of danger to it. Whereas Discovery is just you're flying by the seat of your pants half the time. You feel yeah. like constantly in danger, and that's what's exciting about it. Is uh, Discovery your favorite now, or? or I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, I think I really am. I think they really took a lot of risks the first season, and they, they put us in awkward places. And I think it really got Star Star Trek uh, Star Trek fans' backs up, which I love. Yeah, that's hysterical. I, too, I, I hosted a panel on it in uh, at Galley this year, and um, we had a, a good long conversation about it. It was fascinating. Um, apparently, one of the, the script editors was there. And she enjoyed it. She said, we're moving some good points. Oh, so like, okay, good. I was like, you know, that, that you. has that potential of being, well, apparently one of the script editors is there. And this, we have, we've been given, we've been in our notice. Um, we've, been, we've been told to shut up, yeah. <laughs> you know what you're talking about. No, it's, 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 I, think, I think they really did take some risks with that show. And that, that really paid off. And that was the problem, a real big problem, which they obviously identified with Enterprise, which is, it's just very safe. Now, I say that with the proviso that I haven't watched the last season, and apparently that's a big difference. They okay. took a, a, big, a, big, uh, a big turn, and Manny Cotter took over as a showrunner, and I have a lot of respect for him, and I think mm -hmm. he did interesting work and other things. So I'm really looking forward to that, and I, I, I will hold off any final judgment until I see that.
Sure. So yeah, it's all. Well, without not having to be able to finish the series as a whole, I can't ask you what you mm -hmm. felt about it ending. Yeah. But do you think that having and this is comparing to the original season, right? Mm -hmm. the, the original yeah. storylines. Do you think that having an overarching theme hmm. helps a show like Star Trek, which is about discovering new planets and new civilizations, mm -hmm. which very much the original show, I don't think there's anything more than a two-parter. I don't think they the ever go show? back yeah, to that. Yeah, there's and, a couple of cliffhangers. Yeah. yeah, but there's not like, you know, something that lasts half a season the way no. that modern television really seems to need audiences to identify with a, a overarching story. We're well, watching in. a very different kind of TV. Yeah. I mean, in the 60s, um, the show had to be able to be cut up and put par parceled out in pieces. Right. And uh, the networks didn't show the episodes in order most of the time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they just sort of put it wherever they wanted. It had to be this format to, to, to appeal to the networks, and really that was it. Star Trek is no longer a network. Well, it is a network show. CBS is doing it now. But, I mean, Next, um, uh, Next Gen was, was cable. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't universal to did it by themselves um, and that's that changes things uh, but the biggest change of course is the fact that we're not watching it um, parceled out one week after week we're watching it usually in binging we're, we're mm -hmm. sitting down watching it in, in, in huge chunks like four right. or five episodes at a time and that changes everything mm -hmm. because you're watching these uh, one single episode one-offs five of them in a sequence <laughs> it's wearing because nothing seems to move there's very static. Everything's reset to the end. Everything resets to the end. Everything resets to the end. Whereas if you get something to keep you going between the episodes, then it makes a five five episode binge yeah. possible, and yeah, it's yeah. a lot of fun because you really true. feel you've got some. Battlestar Galactica was great that way. Oh my God, you're in, it was intense. You're like pfft, like gripped by the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the show. That's what Discovery's obviously learned, and it's, it's moving forward because TV, the TV world, has changed so much since the original season, since the sixties. Um, going back to Enterprise, yeah. um, is there were there characters? You said you, you for the most part you liked the actors were okay, and well, you, you yeah, said I that mean, the characters seemed to be a little bit in the way the archetypes. Yeah. But was there? Because you, I, the experience that I usually have is you find a character that you like, you latch onto them, right. and you try to experience the show through them. If, mm -hmm. if if it's not working otherwise, you know you get an ensemble cast. Uh, of characters you can you can pick and choose mm -hmm. was there someone that you specifically went like might be worth watching because you want to see what happened to this character or someone who kind it's of intrigued you yeah, from a, a it, conceptual point it's odd the, doc, the characters aren't the ones I expected to like I mean they're not the, the, the main bridge crew I kind of like yeah. tolerate um, I mean the, the sexy Vulcan she's perfectly good but she, the, there's a I, I realize um uh, I was watching uh, Discovery. Sorry, not to get, keep on talking about Discovery all the time, but it's it's a very good. Uh, I know what show you want to talk about. A, well, no, it. no, it's an example because um, Jolene Blaylock, who plays um, uh, what's her name, T'Pol, T'Pol, um, and she's playing the unemotional, um, the unemotional Vulcan, of course, um, and she does it, and she gets shot. She's like unemotional, fine, um, but then you watch an actor like James Frain in Discovery playing Sarek, and. He's playing someone who's repressing their emotions, not someone without any emotions. Ah. And you can see it in his face and you realize that's what Leonard Nimoy was doing too. It's like, he's having emotions. He's excited, he's happy. He's, um, his emotion, his, his intellect is, 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 uh, is fascinated by something and he's like terribly engaged by it. And you can see that in his face. He's not unemotional, he's just holding it back. Ah. And that makes the world of difference. And bless Julian Blaylock, it wasn't it's a, it's a thankless task, a part in many ways, but she's just like, 
dead. And it's like, oh, she looks very nice, but it's like, no, it's not. That's not what it's supposed to be. It doesn't feel like they are ever focusing on what's going on up here in her head. No, on that show. No, there's a lot of she's lowering camera. There's yeah. a lot of there's like, a lot of shots of her ass. Shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's unfortunate. She's this sort of closed box, and she's literally objectified as this kind of like this entity, and nobody understands what's going on in her head. It's like oh, and she's she's constantly patronized, and and people are like saying. Terribly rude things about her to her face, and it's like God. And this, like, I don't know. The the, the character that drives me crazy is the engineer, uh, played by Connor Trenier, Trip or something. It's called. Yeah. It's like it's a southern yokel caricature, who's like, "Gee whiz, let's try that crash! Wow, bang, that didn't go well." And it's like, God, would somebody shoot this guy through the forehead? It's like, why is he on a spaceship? He's incompetent. I mean, he's a brilliant engineer, so great. That's why he's there. But he's every other way. He's a diplomatic nightmare. He cannot control himself. He's like constantly doing idiotic, dumb things. It's like, God, it seems like a simple problem to just get rid of this guy. Train someone else. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's a shame because obviously he's brought in as the, as the McCoy, as the kind of like emotional guy yeah. to, to, to bounce off off to Paul or the, the more practical people but it's just like wow it's a bit broad for me I'm afraid he's a bit of a cowboy yeah which is interesting because it seems like they they brought in or wrote Archer to be a a hard and solo type captain yes yeah and one of the things that we haven't mentioned just because the, the backstory of Enterprise if, if you know, for those who haven't watched it or read on, mm-hmm. on it is that it's taking place right at the beginning of warp technology. Yeah. You know, it's mm-hmm. this is taking place after first contact the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. The warp technology is something that Archer's father had started to develop. Right. But the Vulcans who have this technology yes. are holding it back. Are yes. not and there's this massive distrust because it essentially it's not colonization. Mm-hmm. It's intellectual colonization in that right. they have come and they are patronizing humans. It's a protectorate. It's very, they're, looking, yeah. they're looking after the humans as they step onto the galactic stage. Right. And the resentment is there from that. The Vulcans yeah. are, are daddy. The Vulcans are essentially the British Empire. Yeah. Uh, they're kind of like, yeah, no, no, just, no you're, not, you're not doing that. And of course, the humans are just not, not tolerating that. There's a little bit, I mean, unfortunately, the, the, the mindset of the humans is kind of pushed to the other extreme, which is like, just buccaneer. Let's just go out there and like swashbuckle around and like get into trouble and get into fights. Like, wow, that's fine. And like, no, just get some professionalism, please. Well, they feel very American. They, they do feel, feel very, very American. Th- uh, caricaturized American. Yeah. Where it's just like, yep, we know yeah. we're not going to listen to what you say. We're not going to worry about safety. No. I'm going to bring my dog on a ship. <laughs> <laughs> what could possibly yeah. go wrong with that? Yeah. Though, actually, favorite character on the show. Uh, um, uh, Porthos the dog. Porthos the dog. Porthos yeah. the dog. But there's, but there's, but there's. Just speaking of diplomacy with Trip and, yeah. and the Vulcans, there is some antipathy towards the Vulcans from the entirety yeah. of the crew. Like yeah. they don't want a Vulcan on board. The Vulcan I, is. The Vulcan doesn't want to be there. Nope. They don't want the Vulcan. Mm-hmm. The Vulcan is constantly undermining. At least in the first, the first two seasons, yeah. to Paul is essentially you don't know whose side. She is on, yeah, and she's like, "Oh no, no, I'm. I will do what ha- has to be done for the I'm mission." A member of this crew, yeah, yeah, and she proves herself. I mean, she's very good. She's she's constantly. Like, you just feel that she's kind of mommy, and she's like, 
putting up with the kids being unruly and she just has to deal with these idiots most of the time and they're all behaving like morons <laughs> they it's are like, come on guys get us get it together just behave i mean like they they did it next gen very professional the crew is very professional they were on on ball everyone did what they were told to do it's not boring um whereas i mean the the, the classic the, the the thing the boneheaded thing that enterprise does is every time there's a new planet they go to, they send the entire bridge crew down <laughs> Which is what they original, did in the original series, because of course you can't have a show where the, the, the hero, Captain, isn't going down there having adventures. And Next Gen, of course, they went, that's dumb. Why would you send the Captain down into danger every time? So uh, Picard sits on the bridge, and he sends down some people with red shirts on, and his second is first officer. And they go down there and do some have adventures and come back up. That with makes a lot of sense. With less Every time. And every. somebody gets killed, and that's the way it works. But Enterprise, no. Jonathan Archer goes down to the... And the chief engineer goes down into danger all the time. He's like, really? You can afford to throw away your chief engineer? That's really ballsy. Um, <laughs> or your science officer is like, do you not have other people? There's supposed to be like 80 people on this ship. And the only people ever go, or ever go anywhere are the bridge crew. And it's like, really? <laughs> come on, guys. It's just, ah, driving so, me crazy. So there's two full series, you know. So yeah. Enterprise happens, we, we get... Um, DS9, we get Voyager. There's two yes. full series that, that are in there. Yeah. I know one of the things that people didn't like about Enterprise is the crew is supposed to be too perfect. Yeah. Like, they're too efficient, they're too good, and because yeah. Roddenberry was alive at the time, didn't want there to be inter-conflict between Well, characters. that was original, yeah, ex original right. next-gen, yes. Do you think that's sort of like going, well, okay, let's do what uh, next, uh, next Generation did, but just... Do the opposite of it. I mean, is it almost does that? It feels like when you're it, describing it very quite passionately, which I appreciate. Um, that's sort of. I mean, it's. It, I just feel that they went back to to the format, and they they were very slavish about it. And that was not. I mean, they were trying to. I think Voyager was not quite as much of a hit as they wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And they, they they felt that Voyager was trying something, uh, trying something a little risky. I don't know. I mean, Voyager for me just bores me to tears. Because the characters' consistency just isn't there. The characters are never really developed properly. Mm. It's always about the plot of the week, and whatever has to happen, the characters will do because you know that's their job. But it never really gets anywhere. Whereas um, Enterprise, I feel they just went, well, you know, that didn't, none of that worked. DS9, DS9, I think is very successful, but like they're kind of embarrassed by it or something. It's like let's go back to the original format and do that again. And it's like, no, didn't we learn anything from Next Gen? Did Voyager run seven seasons? Uh, it feels like it. I it don't did, know how yeah. long it did. Yeah, it was a long, yeah. long... I mean, a lot of people were really into it. I don't know. I never got it. It just drives me crazy. It's like, boring. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Voyager. I wanted to like it. I really did. I, I have to ask you this about Enterprise. <laughs> how did you feel about the theme song? <laughs> there it is! <laughs> there it is! <laughs> you see, now, my head has been clear of that song for a couple of weeks now, because I haven't watched it for a couple of weeks, and I was like, I'm very happy about that. Now you said that. Uh. <laughs> I've got the heart. Apparently, it's based on a Rod Stewart song. It's just like, and the thing is, that's the thing against me. It's like the, the justification by the producers for doing this horrendous thing is that it's like it's a bit more edgy. That tells you all you need to know about Enterprise. That song is not edgy. It was no. never edgy. There's nothing edgy about it. It's just the most bland problem. Oh God! Every starts in the show. You have to like. Have to like. I'm very, very good at catching, skipping it forward past the song, <laughs> just getting the dom chord at the end. I think it's for because it drives me crazy. Yeah, it's, it's. Oh God, it's horrendous. Sorry. I really, no. It really drives me crazy. Uh, Why? Why? <laughs> I remember watching it for the very first time, going. Oh, I thought 
enterprise is supposed to be on this channel and skipping ahead to something else and yeah. going, oh, oh, no, wait, there it was. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. That's what happened when I first saw it. I was so excited. It was, oh, a new Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. I got the opening scene and then the theme and I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, not saying it has to be orchestral. It doesn't have yeah. to be like Alexander Courage, but it can be something different, but not, please no. Please, whatever that is. I know some people like it and, you know, each into their own, but no. <laughs> um. Well, I don't think we can follow the theme song. Uh, uh, no. And they have given us uh, the five minute warning. So yep. uh, thank you so much for joining us on Very this particular episode. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for subjecting to me that. To me that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> making me watch it. I would like to point out that it was your idea to come up with that one. No, so I did shoot down. I did. I did shoot down uh, the the new one, cause Discovery, because Discovery, because it, it's not having access. To yeah, it. I know. Like, I know. No, how I about know, Enterprise? I'm like, really? Yeah. Because <laughs> no one else, no one else wanted to do it, kids. Yeah. No one else has come onto the show to talk about anything Star Trek. So I love that we started with mm. the chronological. Uh, in, in in no, I guess it's not the chronological in canon for a series, but uh, you know up to that point, so it kind of is. Yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. Anybody in the audience have anything they would like to ask? It doesn't have to be about Enterprise. You've got a, a, a comic. Or do you really love Enterprise? And you're going to shoot me down? Please do. I'm, do you I'm, have I'm the lyrics to the theme song tattooed on your body? <laughs> I hate the theme song, but I do love the visuals for the opening credits. I thought those were spectacular. Oh, the montage of kind of like space, Alan Shepard and the, 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 the yes. yeah. That's fun. Yes, I mean, I have no problem with that. Opening. I have no problem with that. Anyone here see Valerian in the city with uh, planets? Um, city without the opening. The opening montage, which is of course a space oddity, uh, when it first started, and all these things were being built. I'm like, oh, that kind of reminds me of Enterprise. Oh, that you know. Oh, it was good. Mind. It was good opening. <laughs> Better music for that one. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, <laughs> I have to watch that movie. That's I'm actually looking forward to that one. Is it good? It depends on what you want. <laughs> Do you want a plot? Uh, I'm willing to accept that it's a Luke Besson movie, therefore largely ambling, rambling nonsense. If you don't care about a plot, mm -hmm. and you don't care about uh, chemistry, if mm -hmm. it's okay, it essentially is two wooden puppets running around <laughs> in some of the most spectacular <laughs> visuals you've ever seen okay. in cinema, yeah. then you'll be fine. I don't, I, <laughs> That's yeah. fine, I'm good, I'm good with that. That's yeah. yeah, I mean, I know particularly Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne. I don't care about either of these people. The fact that you even know their names, I don't know their names and I've seen the movie, so <laughs> well done, sir. I have Bravo. a creepy memory for film information. I Rihanna's in it. Oh, well, oh, she's okay. always very nice uh, to watch. Clive Owen is in it. Always good. That, no, no, uh, um, um, uh, Roy Batty. Um, why? Oh, Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer is in it for oh. two minutes. Oh. <laughs> Maybe two minutes. I think he has three lines. Always worth seeing Rutger Hauer. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this has been Rutger Hauer Talk. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope, did you guys have fun every generation? Yeah. Yeah. It's been really. a good con. It has been a good con. I really enjoyed it. So yes. thank you guys for... Thank you for coming. For basically ending your, your convention with us. Yeah. We appreciate it. And round of applause for Simon. Yes. And he has to get back to work drawing naked I'm Hawkeye. Naked so. Hawkeye, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Cover the child. Oh, sorry. Right? There's nothing actually showing. Yeah. And with that note, we're done. <laughs> it's been long. <laughs> <laughs> You're girl. <laughs> um, and so 
there that was. I, I think it's we didn't really cover this, but um, you can very much tell that what Simon really wanted to talk about with Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. Uh, and because the show had just come out and it was subscription only and it was only its first season, one of the things that we're we're trying to focus on on who and company is to talk about programs that have already run its course so we can talk about the the entirety of that that show from start to finish um and mm-hmm. so that wasn't possible uh so the fact that we were talking about uh, a program which he'd only seen two seasons of uh, i i had done my research and you know i went on wikipedia and i read synopses of all four seasons and and um yeah, was absolutely unnecessary, which is fine because, <laughs> to be honest, I don't really need to watch four seasons of Star Trek Enterprise. I'm sure there are folks out here who love it. I have no problems with it. Um, there's just a lot of Star Trek to be had, and you know I can give some of it a pass. So there's there's that. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Uh, Simon was. Simon was awesome. The crowd was really good too. Uh, yeah, it was really nice to have everybody there, especially. The second to last panel slot of the entire convention, people were heading mm-hmm. home already. You know, by that time, yeah. the convention had started to clear out. We were also going up against um, the day five became six with Peter Davison, Colin Baker, and Nicola Bryant. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a two doctor panel. The fact that we had anybody in the audience was really, it was really <laughs> great. So it was, it was wonderful to see all those faces in there. Um, yeah. I finished out the con with the second part of. Uh, Paul Mars Writer's Workshop, which... Yeah, how did your story turn out? Uh, the story turned out pretty good. There were a lot of people. I think there was 32 people in the group. Uh, everyone tried to read a little bit of their story out loud. I have never read one of my stories in a crowd before, uh, which is odd. Um, the story exercise was done with the first workshop. We were given homework to tweak it over the, the couple of days. And so I read it. It was fine. You know, I'm not... He didn't, you know, stand up and, you know, give me a slow clap standing ovation <laughs> and, and tell me that he's going to retire and I should take over his position. It, uh, right. <laughs> you know, I read his story. He's like, cool. There's some really good moments in that. And I was like, thank you. And then we left. Like, that was it. The con was over. Uh-huh. Um, I know they did a how do we do panel. But at that point in time, I had already gone over to the Pixel Who, um, their stand and started breaking it down. So uh-huh. which took a while. yeah uh went home uh eventually uh came home and and uh realized i was sick so yay (laughs) yay com crud yeah but on the whole super positive experience i really enjoyed it it was um i left not long after our panel did a couple of laps around to see everything again and uh and i was out of there and but I have to say, overall, it was really great seeing some uh, some old friends again that I had met a couple of years ago. I Joy, Heather, Kathleen Showalter. Yeah. Uh, they were all there. And some new friends that I met, like Valerie and um, Irene. Uh, yeah. Simon Fraser and his lovely family and uh, Nathan of Pixel Who and, uh, and Lou. And, um, just ran the gamut of emotions for me, really. Um First of all, the excitement of Capaldi and um, also William Russell getting that interview was excellent. A little bit of fear being on my first panel as a guest, but that went really well. Um, and even a poignant moment when um, I was doing that panel and Irene started telling her personal story of uh, acceptance and everything. And that was that was uh, that was a moment there. And uh, 
overall, I think that was the best con I've ever been to. And I've been to a few. Great weekend. Great weekend. Yeah, absolutely. You know, here's the thing that as I start going to these conventions, it's less and less about the, the guests and more about the friends that you make at these conventions and being able uh-huh. to spend some time with them and to catch up and to just know that you're accepted in a massive crowd of people. And they it, believe me, it was a massive crowd of people attending this convention and just being able to settle in and know that every single person is there because they love Doctor Who uh, or they're a fan of Doctor Who or they at least love some portion of Doctor Who. I've heard a lot of panels where people, you know, aired their dis- their grievances about certain aspects, and that's fine, and that's kind of what being a fan <laughs> is. Uh, but I certainly would, certainly would and will return to the Regeneration Who convention. Mm-hmm. I would also like to point out that Terry Malloy did eventually get his bear back um, uh, after a definitely Bond villain-esque performance by janet fielding uh, uh <laughs> he was returned and they all lived happily ever after and that's it yeah it was it was fantastic meeting you and it was great going and um thank you guys for joining us for this episode of who and company who and company come for the fandom stay for the company thanks for joining us at who and company Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show at patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. It's been a long road. Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally near And I will see my dream come alive at last I will touch the sky And they're not gonna hold me down no more No, they're not gonna change my mind